What's going through the mind of a child when they lose everything? I remember just hoping, I was like, please say something. Like, acknowledge the silence and the, the hard like aspect of what we're going through right now. What does it look like to be placed into a caseworker's car and driven to a new home? And he reached in the back seat, grabbed a milk crate full of toys, and told me I could have one. And then he buckled a seatbelt, turned the radio up, and we drove away. Today, we resume part two of a conversation with host Stacy Gagnon and former NFL player Galen Elmore. He continues to share his emotional journey that's important for all of us to hear, giving us insight into how we should respond as caseworkers, foster parents, and teachers. Here's Galen in part two of his episode of Trauma for Breakfast. And then he buckled a seatbelt, turned the radio up, and we drove away. I remember just melting in my seat and it was just like, shoot, I gotta, I gotta shut everybody out. And I went that first night, I went to a crisis nursery and I was there for two, three days. Don't remember, legitimately don't remember talking to anyone. I remember just kind of sitting off to the side by myself. Some of the women would come up and ask me if I wanted to do certain things and I would kind of do whatever I could to get them away. A couple of days later, he showed up with one of my sisters uh, to pick me up. And I remember sprinting over to him and wanting to like burst with all of these like comments, jokes. Like I hadn't engaged with anyone in a couple of days and I just wanted to like shower it all over him. But then I, as soon as I got to him, I remembered, I was like, oh, in the car, you didn't make me feel better. You didn't like engage with me. So like, I got to remember the decision I made to shut people out. So I can't, I, so I remember like wanting so badly to be myself and then retreating back into my corner and just like not saying anything. And that's how it was for the next year, year and a half of foster care until they eventually placed me in that foster home with my two sisters um, when I was going into first grade. Oh, Galen, I'm trying not to cry because I want to be that person in the car with you that emotionally validates all that. Like I, I am sorry. Thank you. And Yeah it's an unfortunate spot. And I, for a long time, I didn't have empathy for the people on the other side of the system, right? The people that are the gatekeeper of everything bad and everything that's wrong with the system being the the child welfare workers, agency workers, um, anyone that wasn't me or my parents or my family. And I, I look back now and I, I do have empathy for the incredibly difficult, challenging, sad, awkward, unnatural position that some adult is in by removing them from physically removing them from their family, right? Like I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, I should have never been. It was an injustice that I was removed in the first place. Yes, I believe that as a kid, but I look back now as an adult, as a, as a father, knowing like they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And there's objectivity about that. But at the same time, knowing like, man, we're working with shapeable and moldable youth. How can we better posture, prepare, equip ourselves to navigate those moments with love and compassion and trying to erase that gap of belonging, right? There's so many things in that moment that's communicating to me that I don't belong with my family in this world, with him in the foster homes that I'm going to go to. There's so many things communicating that to me. And, and really what I wanted was for someone to acknowledge the unfortunate situation we were in or how hard it was, how difficult or challenging that 
the emotions that I might be feeling in that moment. I didn't need them to quote unquote, make it better. Like that was the language I had in my head. It's not like something you could put a bandaid over, right? Like this is deep integral, like trauma that is happening. And he's not going to fix that with, with a snap of a finger, but to at least like enter into that space with me would have been extremely valuable. And although he was physically there with me, he wasn't emotionally there with me. And, and I think that made a, a massive difference. I would say from a, especially when I first started foster parenting, and then also I think from the perspective of even that caseworker, is there's always this fear that if you talk about it, it like makes it more real and traumatizing. When the yeah. reality is, is that this is what you lived. This is something that has to be talked about. You have to have a narrative around what has happened to be able to formulate so much of your response. Like speak to foster parents right now and and just how to receive these kids and and what you wish your foster parents had understood or known about you. Yeah, that's a great question. That's exactly where I was going to go. So I I think something that that deeply frustrated me like, irked me to my core as a kid going through the system is that I was disregarded as though I was a child who was unaware of what was happening. There is something subconscious that is just biologically like communicates to us that not being with our family, not being with our quote unquote tribe is wrong, right? Like belonging isn't this idea. It's this natural and fundamental need for everybody. And so when we have children that are being separated from their family and they're going through this traumatic thing, again, we're not even acknowledging all the traumatic things that may have led to them to experience the traumatic thing of being taken, right? There are other traumas that can happen that leads to that. But I just felt like I was disregarded. My perspective, my experience, I felt disregarded in the fact that like, I felt like I was a very aware and present kid. Again, to not talk to me about what, I was going through or try to engage with me in a conversation on a a human to human level frustrated me. So when I would talk about things that I was experiencing, like I felt like it was brushed off because, oh, you're just a kid and you might be exaggerating it, right? Like times that I spoke up about the abuse that I was experiencing, I felt like it was brushed off. And so for, for the foster parents, for the, for the people out there that are caring, like we can't treat these children that are experiencing things that adults, some most adults don't ever experience, right? We can't treat them as though they're just some ordinary kid, right? So, and, and this is the, the hard part that frustrated me about it because you have the good and bad of being an ordinary kid, right? The good is you're treated and loved in this ordinary uh, way or not ordinary, but this normal traditional way. Like you get all the connection, you get all of the presence, all the jokes, the laughs, like think about a foster parent with biological children, the normal, the good part of the normal side, you get all of those. The best part of the ordinary kids side of it is that you get disregarded. Like maybe your opinion or your thought or expert or opinion or uh, experience may not be as valid or taken for what it is or for face value when talking about it with an adult, right? So it may be disregarded in that way. That's the good, bad side of a biological ordinary kid. But a kid in foster care, not only does policy and, and certain rules prevent me from experiencing most of the good, like I'm not allowed to experience most of the good. At the same time, I still have to accept all of the bad, which is to not be able to be viewed as 
a person with my own thoughts, beliefs, and feelings, right? This idea that, oh, you can't really say what you want or where you want to be as a kid in the system until you're like 13, 14 years old. Like I genuinely believed with navigating uh, my parents, like knowing that my parents were, were drug users, right? Knowing that I was separated from them to then be experiencing abuse and different things like this. Like there were things that at seven years old that I had experienced that the adults that I was talking to never experienced themselves, but still my opinion wasn't valid. I guess the, the key point that I'm trying to say is we have to give kids, or if you have an opportunity, absolutely give these, these kids going through foster care and adoption, don't take the power away from their voice. In so many ways, that's all you have. That was another frustrating aspect of foster care is that no matter what, I felt like I wasn't the one that was responsible for what was happening to me. I, I didn't make the decisions that led me to being in, the, in foster care in the first place. I didn't make the decision to, you know, or for the foster parents that told me, you know what, we don't want Galen here anymore. You need, like, we need you to find a new placement for him. I don't feel like that I made that decision. I didn't make the decision to physically and emotionally, like I didn't make any of those decisions that led me to being abused. And so, so much my decision like the decisions of other people determined what I could and couldn't do. And yet the only thing that I did actually have, which was my voice, wasn't being validated. In so many situations, our, our, these youth, our kids that we're trying to love and care for, all they really have is their voice. So don't minimalize it. Don't try to lessen it. But if anything, like be, be a beacon for it, be a stereo that's going to blast their voice to the world. And and those kind of things is really why I do what I do, right? Like I want to, for every, every child out there or every kid out there that may feel like their voice is invalid and maybe experiencing similar things to what I experienced, I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm a pound bang the drum all day for you. I'm going to jump up and down, do everything I can with the platform and the audience that I have. So your, their experience is better. The reality is each of us if you're a foster parent, if you're someone else in the child welfare space, you have the opportunity with your platform, your role to be able to do that same thing. I, and I love what uh, the theme throughout all that you just said is truly about not stripping away the voice of the kids that come into our homes or come into our communities that or into our schools that already have had everything stripped away, right? I would love to, to hear a little bit more on your high school experience with your coach leading into yep. college and NFL. I, I know that was a big part of your life, but I, I think having talked to you earlier and hearing that, okay, at some point you were diagnosed with an attachment disorder. And so I would love to hear how you were able to overcome some of that in, in order to trust people and relationships again. Yeah, it's, it was nothing that I did in like full transparency. I was able to work through it when people in my life finally started to commit to being there and being present with me. I mean, the only person that in my childhood, zero to 18, that was with me for a long period of time consecutively was my foster parent that abused me for almost six years. It's the only person that stayed around for, for the long term. And so what does that communicate to me about positive relationships or relationships in general? And so once I got out of that foster home, I was totally okay with not letting anyone know anything about me. Um, I got really good at making people feel like they knew me, but really holding everything about me close to the vest. 
In reality, they didn't know anything about me, but they felt like we were best friends. And moving around school to school, I got really good at that. Well, I got to where I went to high school and my sophomore year, this is my second time. I went through my freshman year, my sophomore year, uh, my dad ended up getting arrested. I was about to go back into foster. They told me that I was going to have to go back into foster care. I was going to run away. I was going to drop out of school. I was going to try to get my GED and get emancipated. And I was just going to start living my life at 16. My older sister had done that when she was 15. She became emancipated and she was on her own. And so I was like, I, I can do it. If anything, she stopped going to school in like seventh, eighth grade. I was already a sophomore. I had been doing school a couple years prior to when I was even eligible for school. So I was like, I, I can ace the GD. That's, that's no problem. I was going to drop out. And then my coach, he pursued me. I left the office after they told me that my dad was arrested. He pursued me. It's crazy how similar this situation is to when I was sitting in that car with my social worker. The juxtaposition of those two, like it gives, it gives me chills every time I think about it because I'm on the bookend of my adolescence, right? I'm four or five years old and I'm 16. Two completely different people, two completely different ways of thinking about things. That kid in the car wanted to be pursued, wanted to put hope and trust in someone else right before giving up hope. I didn't get pursued. At 16, I didn't want to put hope or trust in anyone anymore, ever. Um, I was actually adamantly against it. Didn't want to be pursued, was actually going to prefer if no one did it at all. And I was going to leave and go on my own. And when I was in that car, didn't happen. He didn't really say anything that addressed the situation. When I walked out of the office uh, when I was 16, I ended up right before getting to my locker to get my stuff to leave. I broke down and started weeping in the hallway just because I knew the, the decision that I was going to have to make, the weight of everything. It was finally too much. And it was just like, I was ready to give up in a lot of ways. And, and I think dropping out of school was the outcome of me giving up. Then I feel my coach's hand on my shoulder. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth, he was like, Galen, I can't imagine what you're going through right now or uh, how hard this may be for you. And he said, I don't have all the answers, but I want you to come live with us until we figure it out. And again, if some, if that caseworker said just that to me when I was sitting in his car when I was four years old, would have meant the world, would have probably changed everything. Arguably, like maybe I am myself when I get to a couple different foster homes. Maybe I stick there a little longer. Maybe I never end up at the abusive home, like go down this rabbit hole of shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? But in this moment, he tells me that. And in my head, it's like, oh, it sounds good. A little too late for someone to want to do that for me. I had lived my whole childhood going into people's homes who said they wanted to take care of me or let me live there and then to only kick me out and turn me away. So I was like, all right, sounds good. I'm still going to do what I need to do. I ended up moving in with him after like I tried to sneak out of school. He was like waiting out front at his car for me, uh, told me to get in, got in. I ended up moving in with him and halfway through my sophomore year. And then I ended up staying there until I graduated high school. But that wasn't like the turning point. Like a lot of times people was like, oh, that's the happy ending. That's the end of the story. But I still live. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 not. Um it's not the, that's not the, that's not success because I was still living in their home for the next eight months, like a tenant. I felt like I was renting out a room in their home because I was ice cold. I was not engaging. I was not talking. I was doing the same stuff that I had learned as a kid. I was like, I'm not doing this. I'll, I'll be here until you're ready to get rid of me. And then when you get rid of me, I'll go to a foster home. I'll run away and I'll do what I plan to do in the first place. 
But how I started to really understand and start to process my past, because I had never done therapy. I had never talked to anybody about anything that I went through other than a couple adults I confided in and try to tell them, like, try to get me help and get me out of it. I had never processed any of it. Um, even when I got back with my dad, we didn't talk about it. There was so many ways while I was in foster care, my dad advocated for uh, my abusive foster parent. My mom gave up her parental rights to keep us with our abusive foster parents. She testified on behalf of them. My parents, my dad was in a place to process. He had so much trauma. He didn't process. We didn't do, we didn't talk about it. And, and so after like every single day while still in that school, um, they made me come down to the counselor's office for an hour every day. And I would go down there and for months, I would just sit there in silence. They would ask me questions. They would try to talk to me and I wouldn't say a single word, but they kept doing it. And for the first time in my life, someone was continuing to show up. They were refusing my answer of no or go away and being like, no, we're going to stay. I know you want us to leave, but we're not going anywhere. And they continued to show up. Even if I would cuss them out one day, can, Hey Galen, how's it going the next day? Like come to our, we'll see you in seventh period, come to our office. And they just chipped away at the wall, the wall that I'd put up around all my emotions, all my insecurities, all my vulnerabilities. They just slowly chipped at it. And then one day, like they caught me at a right mood or asked the right question or a combination of the two. And I answered it. And then it kind of got the ball rolling. We started to talk a little bit more. And then one day I went home and my coach, like, because he was my guardian, got access to certain files and started asking other questions and started to like poke holes in other parts of uh, the wall. And through just resiliency on their part, uh, at some point, like, I just remember being almost done with my junior year. And like those counselors were some of my best friends and they were just people that I loved uh, to death and that I was so grateful for because for the first time I'm feeling safe enough to talk about what I'm talking about, but also I'm seeing the benefits of talking about all the things that I went through. And, and so that's when I really, that's when I got diagnosed with attachment disorders. When I realized, started to realize like what was like, and they started talking to me about ACEs. They started talking to me about trauma and different things. And so I started to get verbiage and, and really being able to wrestle and grapple with the things that I experienced. Then I started to understand like, oh, it's not my fault that all these people went away. It's not just, it's not a representation of who I am. It's more so just maybe the things that have happened to me that makes me act in a certain way. So it, it started to alleviate some of the burden or the guilt of, there were so many ways that I felt like I was the common denominator in every part of my life, right? Like my parents weren't in my life the entire time. That abusive foster parent wasn't in my life the entire time. Like, so just every, every situation I look back on, I was like, I, maybe it is me, maybe I'm the problem. And, and so when I got to that place where I was ready to process it and talk about it, it just slowly started this, this snowball downhill to the point where we're at today and the snowball still rolling. It's much more of an avalanche now where I'm just, I'm ready to, to share, to talk about and help other people do the same thing. Like that is the attachment. Like that is, that's the only thing that stopped it. And, and that's the beautiful thing about belonging, right? Like uh, attachment disorder is this adverse response to this feeling of belonging. And so when I finally started to experience that belonging in a safe and controlled environment and studies have shown or youth who experience belonging, like true and authentic belonging, when they experience it, they'll do everything in their power to fight, to try to keep it. I, I just read that a couple months ago. Like I just figured that out. And little did I know when I got to 
uh, the point where I was being recruited for college football, I could have like, and I'm not saying this to brag, but I was heavily recruited across the country. I had the calls with the Alabamas and the Oregons and the USC's and the Ohio States. And I, I could have went to any big school in the country, but and I you decided- Minnesota. I read that and it was, I, it blew my mind because I yeah. saw that you had been like, you were the, the up and comer that everyone was pursuing to come play. And you, you picked Minnesota. I ended up picking Minnesota and it was, it's 30 minutes down the road from where I went to high school. I made all these other, like, I can make all these other like reasons like, Oh, I want to play early. Oh, I really like the coaches, which I, all those things are true, but really I look back at it now and there are like other experiences that happen with that. But I really wanted to safeguard this feeling of belonging. I felt like if I would go to school in California, that I wouldn't, I would lose that connection with these people. And I wouldn't be able to show them like that their investment into me was in good faith and that it like they're getting a positive return on their investment because of the way that I'm able to go about my life now. Like studies have proven that when youth who are deprived of belonging experience it, they'll do everything in their power to safeguard it, to keep it. And, and that's what was true in my experience. And, and that just allowed those relationships to be more deeply bonded. Yeah. So like, I never have a perfect ex- or answer for it. It's always rooted in the fact that they just in those moments were willing to be more resilient than I was. And that was the first time anyone in my life had kind of went toe to toe with me with something like that. I, I love that you said that about people being adults, being resilient with kids, because what we want to presume is the most resilient in kids when they're the least resilient, right? We yep. want to, we want to say, like, I, I ask this question all the time in trainings. I'll say, Hey, how do we build resiliency? Where do, where does it come from? Where does resiliency come from? And every time people will say by hard things happening. So if that were true, then foster children would be the most resilient people in the world because they've lost everything. And that's not true. But I do believe that when we look at the foster system and we look at kids that are, are living hard in adverse childhoods, that we need adults around them who are resilient, who are going to be resilient to the behaviors, resilient to the pushback, resilient Mm -hmm. in looking at the kid in the backseat saying, you know what, Galen, I don't have all the answers because that's what adults want. And that's why that guy didn't say anything because Mm -hmm. he wanted to have the answers and didn't have them. But your coach got it because he said, I don't have all the answers, but I'm walking alongside of you in this. I'm going to walk alongside of you in this. And that's the answer. That's the answer to belongingness of like, I don't know, even me as a parent, you know, with with seven kids and, and the struggles they have with all of the adversity that they've had prior to adoption is like, I don't have all the answers as a parent, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to sit alongside of you in this. And we're going to work through this together. Oh my gosh. We could probably talk for two hours. I want to have you back on at some point and, and unpack things more, but this has just been such an incredible conversation, Galen. And could you let people know, number one, where they can find you? And then number two, tell us a book you are reading right now. Okay. So I guess where you can find me, I have a website. It's galenspeaks.com. So G-A-E-L-I-N speaks as in the verb.com. And then you can find all my socials and things on that, or just uh, search Galen Elmore on social media and you will find me. I love to interact and have conversations with people. That's what it's all about. It's about the ironing, sharpening iron so that we can be better for the kids that we're serving. One book that I'm reading that 
I didn't expect to have value to the work that I'm doing in the child welfare space, but is greatly shaping it is Atomic Habits. It's by James Clear. It's a book about how to better improve your habits. And he talks about habits aren't really, he breaks it down into the smallest process so you can start to build from there. Like a lot of times people will go about things in a behavioral way, but the reality is how do you break it down to its simplest form and then expand from there? It's a really great book, but I continue to find myself thinking about how does this apply to like vulnerable populations? Because if you think about when you are in a constant like state of trauma or toxic stress or any hyper, like any serious situation for an extended period of time, you're going to start to form habits that are formed for those high stress, high trauma situations that aren't really applicable day to day, right? So if you're living in this constant state, if your body's living in this constant state of life or death, fight or flight, when you're living day to day, you're still going to have that those habits formed. So I've just been reading it and thinking about how can I apply this to the work that we're doing to really change the way that we look at behavioral habits to better equip people to be successful, to be healthy, to really overcome all of the the hard things that they've been through. And I, I think habits and, and kind of how we about that is a really unique but pivotal component of healing and holistically approaching like healing in this space. So I, I started reading it because I feel like my habits have gotten really poor since uh, not being an athlete anymore, like the structure and everything around it. I wanted to kind of get back in into working out and, and being in that really like structured habit kind of day and schedule. And it's, it's helping with that for sure. Cause it's just an awesome book, but also it's like, it's starting to make me think way outside the box and in the work that, that I get to do. That sounds phenomenal. So thank you everyone for joining us today on trauma for breakfast. And I hope that you were as inspired and uplifted by Galen. And honestly, if you are looking for a speaker for an event, Galen is a phenomenal. In fact, I'm just going to be honest. We have Galen coming October 14th and 15th to Winona Lake, Indiana to speak at the Los Barrows Trauma Conference as one of our keynote speakers. So be there, be square. That's right. Be there, be square. Again, thanks a lot, Galen, for your time. Yeah, thank you. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.